0: This is a story about one family's search for justice, for truth.
1: It is also a story about failure, about struggle.
0: The search for justice involves a search for a missing person.
1: The failure to find this person involves the failure of a system. A system that was set up for the sole purpose of truth, reconciliation and forgiveness.
0: But how do you forgive what you cannot forget?
1: And how do you forget that which needs to be remembered?
0: This is the story of the enforced disappearance of Nookutula Simelane and her family's almost four-decade-long struggle to locate her whereabouts and remains.
1: This is also a story about Nokutula's disappearance and its intimate link to South Africa's transitional justice institutional cornerstone, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. A commission that, looking back, signalled a dream deferred. The mandate of uncovering the truth of the past was a quest that failed to be fully realised. And with this, the just pursuits that would come out of this truth-seeking process started to wither away.
0: This is an EJAM podcast series exclusive in collaboration with the Foundation for Human Rights and the University of Cape Town.
1: I'm Louvano Ntuli. And I'm Carl Capitaine.
0: You're listening to Unfinished Business. Carlton Centre in Johannesburg was the tallest building in Africa on the 10th of September, 1983, when a young black woman entered the building from the busy streets of Marshalltown in Jo'burg. Like many South African buildings finished at the height of apartheid, the building has the grace of a watchtower and is seemingly designed to appear like it would stand forever, much like the apartheid system itself. But unlike the building, the foundations of the apartheid system were beginning to crack. Two years later, President P.W. Botha would declare a state of emergency, giving the government free reign to suspend civil liberties. Police could detain anyone for reasons of public safety, without any appeal to the courts. It was under this extreme oppression that the country was experiencing a surge in resistance to the system of apartheid, which had seen the minority white population of South Africa exclusively govern and control the social, economic and political mechanisms of everyday life for 37 years. During the 1970s and 1980s, internal resistance to apartheid became increasingly militant, prompting brutal crackdowns by the National Party government and protracted sectarian violence that left thousands dead or in detention. The African National Congress's armed wing of resistance was known as Umkonto Sizwe and was founded by Nelson Mandela in the wake of the Sharpeville massacre. Its mission was to fight against the securitized South African state. The young woman who entered the Carlton Center that day was Noctula Simelane, a young female activist working as a courier for the Transvaal Urban Machinery Unit within MK. However, Noctula's journey towards activism started about 160 kilometers southeast of Egoli. Born in 1960 in Mzinoni Township near Bethel in Pumalanga, Tembisile Simelane Ngadimeng, sister of Noctula, retells recollections of her beloved sister.
2: I'm Tembi Similana Nkademi, um, a younger sister of Noctula Similana. She was first born. Um, born to Matthew and Sisakele Milan. Well, my father passed, unfortunately, in mm. 2001. Uh, My mom is alive. She's 81 years old this year. Noctula was uh, a brilliant girl. I have not lived long enough to know her. She disappeared when I was nine years old. So I've done quite a lot of searching, records, records, school reports, any other small thing that could properly define to me who Noctula was. So I've created a picture of who she was and met friends, roommates at first comrades who were with her, just in the quest of knowing more than what my parents could tell me about the older siblings that I had. She comes out to me as a hardworking person, a dedicated person, an activist at heart. So her story is a story of many young people, African in particular, who made a choice of contributing in a small, little way that they can in the fight for freedom of South Africa. And she was a student at the University of Swaziland. And was about to graduate uh,
0: about a week to her graduation. She had joined the MK while studying at the University of Swaziland from 1980. The organization she belonged to, we Sizwe, had launched its first attacks against government property on 16 December 1961. It was subsequently classified as a terrorist organization by the South African government and banned. When Noctula crossed the border to South Africa, she told the border guards she was there to buy clothes for her upcoming graduation. But when she entered the Carlton Center in Johannesburg, fashion was the furthest thing on her mind. She was on a top secret mission for the ANC and she was going to meet her contact and comrade, Norman L. Koza, nicknamed Scotch, in the underground parking of the centre. We don't know what she thought as she went below ground to her meeting in the shadows. She had three years of experience as a courier for the ANC. Did she sense something was wrong when she met Koza in the shadowy basement? If she did, it was too late. Koza, as it turned out, was not a comrade, but worked for the Soweto Intelligence Unit of the South African Police. Koza was an undercover police officer, and he was about to betray her. While we don't know the exact details that conspired in the underground parking lot, we do know that Koza was not alone. He was accompanied by a group of police officers, including Willem helm Anton Pretorius, J.F. Williams, J.E. Ross, Muleke Peter Lengene, Frederick Barnard-Mong, M.L. Selamolela, Msebenzi Timothy Tebe, the group overpowered her and abducted her.
2: A, A person whom, in their circles, they believe was a comrade, and he was supposed to take her to the venue of their mission in Val, in Gauteng. But she was abducted and then taken to a police residential quarters. A block of flats called no Wood, and kept in a storeroom there on the upper floor for about a week under torture. And um, it is recorded that because it's a uh, family unit, obviously there are children playing around, there's movement. Um, there were cars, there were everybody else. And when she was interrogated, she would scream. And uh, there was an attraction that was beginning to uh, raise an alarm. So they moved her to a farm in um, today's Limpopo, a boundary of Limpopo and the uh, northwest, uh, in a small town called Notham. just about maybe less than 50 kilometers to Rustenburg. And she was kept there on estimation for about a month, still under torture. And we lose track of what happened to her. It's July
1: 1995. A year after the fall of the Apartheid regime, Nelson Mandela is in power after being elected in the first democratic elections to take place in South Africa. The country is celebrating the fall of Apartheid and the rise of democracy. But the wounds of the transition are still raw. For the Similani family, their wounds were not vindicated in South Africa's newly found freedom in fact, the euphoric time period of transition proved to be the first round of betrayal the Similani family would experience at the hands of the newly democratic South Africa. In 1993 or
2: 4, I was a university student then. Then my father went to John Foster Square to open a missing persons case. And that case was investigated and democracy came. The first minister of police was Sidney Mufamad. I remember that meeting. I accompanied my father. We had started with the premier of Mpumalanga, Matthew Posa. He made an appointment for us with the minister. We went and we followed the trails and the kutziei. And four or five others were then suspended. It's then that we began to have an idea of a trail of what happened. Because a team of investigators, at the end of that docket, it was written, referred to the TRC. So for me, it's a greater sense of betrayal. Because it means my father abdicated a chance of pursuing justice if he had an option of refusing to go to the TRC. But he didn't have Nobody even asked him, you have opened the case, we're now closing your case, we're referring it to the terrorism. So the failure to pursue that is the second betrayal, in my view, because there you have, the only hope you have is justice uh, through the justice system. You take the appropriate channels, you follow them, you cooperate with the investigation, and it gets closed without your consultation. But you subject yourself to the second process, which is the TRC, which also then doesn't follow its own recommendations to
0: its logical
2: conclusion.
0: The promotion of National Unity and Reconciliation Act 1995 was ushered in as the legal doctrine that set out to acquire the full picture of South Africa's violent and secretized past, marred with the undetermined gross human rights violations, both within and outside its borders. The vehicle through which this ideal was to be actualized came in the form of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, or TRC. This restorative, quasi-judicial body would subsequently be where Noctula's case would be non-consequentially handed over to the TRC for further investigation by the South African Police Service, or SAPS, under the leadership of Captain Leisk.
3: Dear fellow South Africans, this is a cry from the heart. I appeal to all of you, right across the political spectrum, please take this golden opportunity to apply for amnesty. Please come forward, because this is an opportunity to put the past behind you, to help in the process of your own healing and the healing of this beautiful land. Please come.
1: The TRC set up three committees, the Amnesty Committee, Reparation and Rehabilitation Committee and Human Rights Violations Committee. The Human Rights Violations Committee investigated human rights abuses that took place between 1960 and 1994, based on statements made to the TRC. The committee's primary roles were identifying the victim's fate or present whereabouts, the nature and extent of the harm they have suffered, and whether the violations were the result of deliberate planning by the state or any other organization, group or individuals. Once victims of gross human rights violations were identified, they were then referred to the Reparation and Rehabilitation Committee. This committee was to provide victim support to registered victims and survivors of the apartheid regime. This meant putting remedies in place to aid in restoring victims' dignity. Additionally, The formulation of policy proposals and recommendations on the rehabilitation and healing of survivors, their families and communities at large was another major component of this committee. The envisioned overall function of all recommendations is to ensure non-repetition, healing and truth-seeking coexist in the post-apartheid nation-state. The primary function of the Amnesty Committee was to consider that applications for amnesty were done in accordance with the provisions of the Promotion of National Unity and Reconciliation Act. As stipulated in the Act, applicants could apply for amnesty for any act, omission or offence associated with a political objective committed between 1st March 1960 to 11 May 1994 being granted amnesty for an act therefore meant that the perpetrator would not incur any criminal liability for that particular act. So in summary, if one satisfied the necessary criteria of full disclosure and proved it was informed by a political objective in front of the committee, then one could walk free. And in theory, this appeared to be a good solution a pragmatic way of ending the spiral of violence and secrecy, of reconciling a broken nation. But what of those where amnesty is not granted, and what of those that never applied for amnesty in the first place? Well, it was never the intention of the Commission to let unrepentant perpetrators walk free.
4: Already in October 1998, Um, You know, the commission, even though it was aware of the fact that most of the amnesty cases have not yet been heard, had decided that it would select a list of 300 cases which it would hand over to the NPA for further investigation and prosecution.
1: This is Yasmin Sukkar, a leading human rights lawyer and transitional justice expert, who served as a commissioner for the South African TRC between 1996 to 2001 and chaired the committee responsible for the commission's final report from 2001 to 2003.
4: But of course when the commission um, finally closed its doors and by 2001 when we were preparing the final report to hand over to President Ibeki then, um, we anticipated that by then the NPA would be in a position to actually begin prosecutions. What is interesting, of course, is that the commission, after the 15th, I think, of March, uh, the 21st of March, uh, 2003, uh, we are done really with the commission. And so it, it was me and a few commissioners like Demisa who at the foundation then began to engage with the NPA on what they were actually going to do with these cases.
0: The foundation Yasmin Suka mentions is that of the Foundation for Human Rights, an independent grant-making and capacity-building institution formed in 1996 supporting civil society organizations in their quest to secure constitutionally guaranteed human rights. The Foundation has been at the forefront of South Africa's transitional justice processes, including supporting the TRC to conclude its final report to the government. Formed in the height of South Africa's transition, the Foundation has since its inception funded victims of political crimes perpetrated during the apartheid period. Addressing impunity and building accountability has thus been a key element of the Foundation's work, something that the TRC and some commissioners started to lose sight of when it came to holding unindemnified perpetrators to account.
1: The dwindling prospect of Commissioner's political will in further investigating rejected amnesty applicants started to transfer from the reparative TRC framework to the National Prosecuting Authority, the public institution responsible for state prosecutions.
0: State repression into the disappearance of her sister was not a deterrent for Tembi. She and her family went looking any place she could. When the state developed a haze of amnesia on finding the fates and whereabouts of the missing or the fallen,
2: my mum even went to a, an extent of going to the ANC SADC quarters in Botswana to look for her when she had met the MK uh, leaders in Swaziland who gave her some details of how she left Swaziland for South Africa and where did she go to. They led her to the safe house where she was staying and indeed she found her bag, her jeans, her shoes, sneakers and and some uh, few amenities in the handbag and she could confirm that these are the belongings of my daughter. And uh, then began the search. So in 1990... My parents were very hopeful. You will recall that 1990, now the ANC is unbanned. Now there's no longer restriction in communication. So they lived with the hope that she possibly escaped and obviously she can't communicate with us. And uh, when the situation normalized and uh, loved ones were returning from exile, then nothing came forth. And we began the search again to some of the comrades we know, her friends and whatever. No, we have not seen her in Mozambique. No, we have not
0: seen her where we, no, no, no. Regardless of this, Tembi kept on looking, and indeed, she started putting some pieces together. I looked for that farm, I found it.
2: I said, come, let me take you. I took my mama, I took my uncles, my aunts, anybody else, I thought it is important for them to go and reconnect with the space. And my brother said, no, I couldn't. And he subsequently passed away in 2015. He had colon cancer, he had a long battle with cancer. But in our intimate discussions as siblings, one of the pain he took to his grave was that of a brother who failed to protect. They were at the same university. She came and bid her farewell and said, no, I'm just going to do one little thing. I'm coming back for my graduation next week. Do this and that and that for me Uh, because my family, I mean, my sister was first born, as I said. It was the first graduate in my father's entire family. So it was a very jubilant moment.
0: And she never got back. Decades later, with the help of the NPA's missing persons task team, initially funded by the Foundation for Human Rights, the Similane family forensically took to Flak Plus to see if they could recover any remains or evidence from the headquartered site of the apartheid death squad. An extract from Bob Simon's 60-minute interview paints a brief picture of the haunting
1: grounds. It's called Block Plus, And it was, in fact, the top-secret headquarters of the regime's death squads. There's never been a farm anything like it anywhere in the world. It's green, quiet and lovely. Green, quiet and lovely. One would never say atrocities like what went on could have happened in this nice spot, is it? What went on here? Well, murders were planned from here, execution of activists, opponents of the government, apartheid government. stealing of vehicles,
3: blowing up of buildings, rides into neighbouring countries. Uh.
2: We went to that farm. We even went to look for dump sites closer to where she was kept. We walked that entire farm and tested any possible spot that we think maybe they came back and repaired. Eh? We went and looked into the possibility of where... The black officers last saw her in the boot of the car because they were linked to other cases. And we had a belief that they went with her to Western Area. And in Western Area, they had four or five safe houses where they were keeping
0: their And ascars. it was here that Noctula was detained for a further four to five weeks. More interrogations and more torture methods were enacted to wear the MK agent down being subjected to methods such as waterboarding, electroshock, strangulation, would all have been but a daily reality for Noctula during those brutal weeks. And then, after Flakblas, Noctula disappears, not just from the streets of Johannesburg, but from the world, and also from the records. A statement by Officer M Vey indicates that the command of the SIU, Willem Helm and Officer Anton Prestorius, shot and buried Similaniya somewhere in Rustenburg. But although these two men admitted to the abduction and torture of Similaniya by applying for amnesty through the TRC, none of them, and indeed, none of the other eight men implicated in her abduction and torture, applied for amnesty for murder. No one would admit to this crime.
4: And of course, what was left open was the question of whether or not they had killed her. Now, the state at this point is prosecuting them or has indicted them on the basis of a common law murder. But, you know, in South Africa, it's very hard to prove if you actually don't have a physical body. And that is something that the perps have not been able to produce or been unwilling to produce because that would then cement the murder charge against them. In the meantime, of course, from the people who were indicted, um, only two remain. The remaining four have died. And in fact, this is a very strange case because quite early on, a number of alleged perpetrators died in very mysterious circumstances, really raising questions, I think, of a conspiracy to ensure that they don't actually tell the truth. And more recently, when we went to court on this matter, the first accused, actually, um, his lawyers filed a medical certificate which suggested that in fact he may be suffering from dementia and um, that in that case, he would not be able to understand the court proceedings and he would not be fit to stand trial. But this was a huge blow for Tembi's family. I
2: mean, she had a choice eh, to sell out. She had a choice to tell it all. And she didn't. And so to hang to everything with your life, it means commitment. It means love for the one you are with and the one that you are fighting for. So I think for me, it's a story which says, I mean, if she didn't give up, how can I? And She didn't give up on one of the difficult, painful journeys. Well, I, I do believe that mine may not necessarily be as difficult as hers, though it has its own challenges, but nobody's
1: beating me up. For Nokatula's abductors, torturers and alleged murderers, the opportunity to tell it all commenced on third june nineteen ninety seven in the form of the amnesty hearings. Officers Katsia, Pretorius, Williams, Ross, Mong, Mkoza, Vei, Silamolela, Radepe, and Willem Squin, the commander of the security branch, applied for amnesty for abduction, torture and other related crimes. None of the applicants applied for amnesty with regards to Similani's murder. On 23 May 2001, amnesty for abduction was granted to all those who had applied for it. In addition, Silamulela and Veyi were granted amnesty for torture. Amnesty for torture was not granted to Kitsia, Pretorius and Monk on the basis that they had failed to make a full disclosure of all relevant facts. With Katsia, Pretorius, and Hmong having been denied amnesty for torture, and Radebe and Skoon never having applied for it, these individuals could be held accountable for crimes under South African law as it relates to abduction, torture, and murder, as well as the international crime of enforced disappearance, in addition to the crimes against humanity of apartheid the work of investigating and prosecuting the matter would fall to the TRC component of the National Prosecuting Authority, or NPA, a department created by then National Director of Public Prosecutions, or NDPP, Pulelani Ntuga, in 1998. Additionally, on 23 March 2003, the Priority Crimes Litigation Unit, or PCLU, within the NPA, was created by presidential proclamation. As its name suggests, this unit was tasked with the identification and subsequent prosecution of priority cases chosen from the 500 or so cases previously reported by the TRC. Approximately 150 cases were identified for immediate investigation, including Similani's. The kind of justice processes that would stem from this institutional transference of responsibility would nevertheless prove to be a legally congested process with little gains for the mandated justice of victims and their families. Madeleine Fullard, head of the NPA's Missing Persons Task Team and former investigative researcher in the Gross Human Rights Violations Committee at the TRC, Shares her analysis as to how this may have come about during the final volumes of the TRC report.
5: Well, I think um, in a way, the TRC suffered from having two endings. You know, the, the 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 first ending in 1998, and then a much more depleted ending of just a smaller structure um, in 2001. So it was a bit of a bang and then a whimper. Um, so the conclusion of volume six and seven um, really didn't have as much impact as the first five volumes. Um, And it was apparent that certainly the ruling party, the ANC, was not really at ease with some of the approaches taken by the TRC. Uh, and, and there were difficulties around that. I mean, th- the whole TRC amnesty process, which didn't differentiate between, you know, those who fought for apartheid and those who fought against it. Uh, you know, you were just a perpetrator, regardless of your, your role in the in the past, and that sat very uncomfortably. Around many people who felt that they had been fighters for justice. And the whole, um, let me say, the the embrace of the international human rights community's definitions really of you know, victim and perpetrator and so on, really didn't sit comfortably either with a liberation movement. Um we had difficulties getting people from the liberation movement to even make statements about their experiences of torture and so on um, because they didn't identify with those categories. Um, I feel that the there was a, a kind of a disjuncture between how the ANC received the TRC and its findings. Um, the ANC was not happy with the findings that the TRC made against the ANC itself that it had as an organization also uh, committed gross human rights violations. And I think that the ANC did not really envisage a future where we were now going to move on to prosecutions. It was more about, you know, governance, getting on with things and so on. Um, And it was clear also from the approach taken by the TRC that the language of human rights meant that anybody who'd committed a gross human rights violation could be prosecuted, whether they were from the liberation movement or the former state, and that prosecutions would not be limited to uh, the former state. And if you actually look at the landscape of violence and death in terms of physical violence and uh, who did the dying. The picture of death in South Africa, political deaths, is actually quite different and much more diverse than people might imagine.
1: The wide and varied ranges of whose bodies are legitimated as dying a political death remains narrowly selective under South African domestic law. This is due to how In closing, all apartheid-era crimes under national law has affected the possibility of indicting perpetrators according to crimes under international law.
4: And, you know, they looked at it from a domestic perspective. And so they dealt with the disappearance, not as an enforced disappearance under international law, but really as an abduction. And they gave them amnesty for the abduction because that's what they admitted but if you consider that if they'd applied international criminal law uh, or even international human rights law, when you deal with an enforced disappearance, the onus is on the state officials to really deal with the truth about what has happened to your final um, you know your final fate and whereabouts. And in that case, the presumption would be, that you would be responsible for that person's disappearance. And so if the amnesty committee had dealt with it like that, it is unlikely that the security branch officials would have got amnesty because then the natural conclusion is you didn't really tell the truth about what happened to her and what her last sort of whereabouts are. But they got the amnesty for the abduction
1: Jeremy Sarkin, member of the UN Working Group on Enforced or Involuntary Disappearances from 2008 to 2014, and transitional justice expert, highlights South Africa's missed opportunity of effectively incorporating international criminal law mechanisms, such as the International Convention for the Protection of All Persons from Enforced Disappearances, into their national prosecution approach.
3: South Africa is in the cusp of ratifying the convention. And the convention will give us specific obligations. I won't deal with that specifically other than to say that um, when South Africa does, South Africa should not only ratify, but also um, adopt um, articles 31 and 32, which allow individuals um, and other states to um, complain to the Committee on the Enforcers' Appearances about South Africa's conduct. It's particularly on the committee on, on the individuals so that South African uh, families who've had enforced appearances in the past could be able to talk about those cases and go to the committee. But South Africa is obligated at the present time because there is a declaration on the protection of all persons on enforced appearances. It was adopted um, uh, in the 1980s. And that's the international law that the United Nations Working Group operates under. And specifically related to to Nakatula Similani, her case was filed before the Working Group in 2014. And South Africa has been transmitting information to the Working Group on those particular matters. So even though South Africa has not yet ratified the convention, it is still bound to comply with the declaration. And the declaration uh, means that all states everywhere in the world have obligations, first of all, not to have enforced disappearances, but also to deal with them and to set in motions uh, issues to prevent them. South Africa, for example, is under an obligation to adopt legislation to criminalize enforced disappearances. There are a whole range of things that South Africa ought to do under the declaration, and those will become binding when South Africa ratifies the Convention. So international law is applicable. South Africa has not always complied in terms of its international obligations relating to prosecutions it brings relating to the international dimension. And part of that, I think, is a lack of expertise in understanding the international obligations, but also how the crimes can be prosecuted using international law. So certainly there's an ability to do so, The question is, will the NPA do so or will it rely on the easier domestic uh, uh, provisions? I would hope that the international law provisions are brought in because South Africa should lead the way in many of these particular instances. The fact that these cases, Nokotunas and Malani, disappeared in 1983. Next year will be 40 years. There's a need to make progress. And one of those ways to make progress is to use international law.
1: The ascension of the convention could signal a positive horizon for families of the disappeared, such as Similani's, as they would have new legal avenues through which to force the state to expedite investigations into enforced disappearances to their conclusive ends. At the same time, the NPA, the custodian of state prosecutions, is a central point of access when it comes to investigating, indicting and prosecuting apartheid-era crimes. But what then happens when the demands of a nation, of a family, become incompatible with the interests of the NPA and by extent uh, South African political elites?
4: I think that it also raises the question for me around whether the NPA is committed to actually, you know, considering strategies which would really allow for us to open up this case. You will recall that last year, we had an incredible engagement with them around whether they would add the international charges and they refused to do it on the basis that it would delay the trial.
0: To give some context, Yasmin is referring to the 2021 effort, whereby the Foundation for Human Rights' legal team engaged with the NPA with the objective of obliging the prosecuting authority to add the international crime of enforced disappearance in addition to the crime against humanity of apartheid for Similani's accused. This litigation strategy was nevertheless refused by the NPA.
4: Well, a year later, here we are, the trial is now going to be delayed to next year so please tell me and the family um you know whether strategically you have thought through all of the angles of the case so it's 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 it's, it's, it's I, I i was raising i think yesterday what happens if we come next year to court and this copies confirms that could can't stand trial and then pretoria says well actually i also have a medical condition um Can you imagine what that means for a family who have searched 44 years for justice? It's crazy.
1: Nearly four decades of truth-seeking for the whereabouts of Nokutula, with no foreseeable end in sight, is an extremely painful burden to carry for those she has left behind.
0: One that her sister Tembi has been obliged to lead and carry for a while now.
1: Nokutula's case is one whereby Tembi and her family have had to encounter antagonistic giants that have no interest or desire to vindicate Nokutula's life through effective and just investigations and prosecutions.
0: In the next episode, we dive deeper into the muddied prosecutorial waters that comprise the NPA's questionable and ineffective response at investigating and concluding the final fate and whereabouts of Noctula.
1: We will also further explore in greater detail the Semilani's family's almost 20-year arduous legal battles with the state and the implications it has on personal closure and healing but also public memory and national reconciliation. I'm your host, Carl Capitaine.
0: I'm Luvann Untuli. And this is Unfinished Business.